I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. It has been a heavy few days with the news of the Hamas attack. Israel is responding now as I speak to you. We're going to be covering that on this edition of the show. This was a very short notice edition of the show that I just recorded with James M. Dorsey of the Turbulent World of Mideast Soccer blog. He is a very astute commentator on issues related to the Middle East and geopolitics. I am so happy he was able to join me on short notice to discuss the latest unfolding events. So let's just get right to it with James M. Dorsey. Also, be sure to check out his article on this subject, the Middle East will never be the same at jamesmdorsey.net. Welcome to Parallax Views, one of our most esteemed guests. He's become something of a semi-regular guest on this program. James M. Dorsey of the Turbulent World of Mideast Soccer blog, and also he has a Substack now. Maybe he can tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, how are you doing, James? I'm doing very well, indeed. Well, basically, uh, this is a column, a syndicated column that I've had for the past 13 years. And um, I guess for the last year, I've been distributing it through Substack. And anyone who's interested, if I may do a plug, <clears throat> interested in uh, subscribing, um, just go to www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com. Preferably, you'll choose to become a paid subscriber, but we do welcome free subscribers. And I really suggest people 
uh, do paid subscription because I know you're putting all the information out there for free. Uh, but you, you know, you need that support. So I hope people will uh, support you with the paying subscription. Uh, I know my listeners consider your commentary on the Middle East some of the best they've heard. I've had multiple emails well, saying that. So uh, everyone well, join that's up. That's very kind. Yep, everyone join up, James, and Substack. Uh, so the reason that you're on, I think, unless everyone's been living under a rock, we're seeing uh, just an explosion of violence in the Middle East, specifically after a attack by Hamas. Uh, and you've written a piece about this. The Middle East may never be the same again. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, how you opened that piece and maybe your general assessment of the attack and what the response may end up being? Well, what I meant with that title was several things. We've seen a period of de what was described as de-escalation in the Middle East. With other words, adversaries re-establishing relations with one another, uh, trying to forge cooperation on various issues, particularly economic cooperation and trade, and all based on, let's just shove aside the problems. Let's try and manage them. Let's, we don't need to try and resolve them. And if all goes well and we all flourish economically, then maybe these problems will go away. Well, surprise, surprise, that's not how it works. And, and you're specifically referring the, to the normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel and, and some of the other normalization efforts that have gone on, Saudi, right? Or, so I'm re well, I'm referring to uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates with Iran, with Turkey, uh, the uh, UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, establishing diplomatic relations with Israel negotiations on a possible recognition of Israel by Saudi Arabia, Turkey's improved relations with Israel and Egypt, um, so on a, on a broad scala. And what we're seeing now, and frankly, we've been seeing it even be, before the um, Israeli-Hamas explosion, but what we're seeing now with the Israeli-Hamas um, um, uh, hostilities is that that's not working. Now, if you go back roughly a week to October 1, when the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, sent a suicide, two suicide bombers into Ankara, the capital of Turkey, you've seen Turkish uh, military bombarding Kurdish positions in Iraq and Syria uh, on a daily basis ever since. So... One of the things that I'm saying is that the notion that the Middle East has changed um, may be a, 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 phantom, a phantom or a fantasy. It's also, I mean, this is significant also because um, you're seeing several other reactions. One is this has put a dent into the sense of superiority prowess intelligence infallibility of the Israelis. But you're also seeing very changing attitudes in terms of Arab public opinion. On the one hand, this reinforces uh, the Arab public's, by and large, rejection of relations with Israel. But the way that Hamas has conducted this campaign in which it was uh, 
not exclusively targeted against military installations or Israeli military personnel. Yeah, the they, they attacked major- a, a music festival. Yeah. The vast the vast majority of the seven hundred dead Israelis, we're talking about six about six hundred fifty of them, are civilians who were either at a music festival, they were killed in their homes, they were killed in the streets, sort of an and I'm not saying that Hamas is like the Islamic State. It is not, but it was Islamic State style attack on on civilians and there are a lot of in the arab world who are revolted by that and are if you look at social media not just in the arab world by the way also in turkey and if you and they're expressing themselves on social media and that's that's unprecedented too so we're we're seeing and then of course um no Israeli government in the last 50 years has survived a major military conflagration, a war, not a military operation like we've seen a number of times against Hezbollah in Lebanon or against Hamas in Israel, but take the 1973 Middle East War, the 1982 Israeli invasion of Lebanon. No Israeli government has survived more than six months after such an event. Uh, so if you are not well disposed towards the current Israeli government, which is the most ultra-nationalist, ultra-conservative in Israel's history, then this opens the prospect for change in Israel. And you're already seeing that with opposition leaders saying they're willing to form an emergency government yeah, I believe Lapid said, you know, Netanyahu, we have to form an emergency government and you need to ditch these far right figures like Itamar Ben-Giver, et cetera, Smotrich. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I mean, both Benny Gantz, the former defense minister, and Yair Lapid, uh, the former foreign minister and briefly uh, uh, prime minister, uh, have offered to join a uh, emergency government. And Lapid has said only if you dispense of your ultra-nationalist, ultra-orthodox, uh, uh, ultra-conservative coalition partners. So in that way, I, I think, you know, this will have fundamentally changed. There's also one other change, if I may. The harshness with which Israel is conducting its um, operations in Gaza is also unprecedented. The cutting off of food, of water, of electricity, uh, and the explicit, for the first time, explicit statement that this is designed to ensure that Hamas cannot govern takes this to a different level. So if we could, I mean, do you want to elaborate on them that more, how that takes us to a different level? Uh, and then I'd like to talk a little bit more about what this means for Netanyahu. But first, if you want to elaborate on how well, this is different, well, what I what I what I mean with this is uh, the way this is not the way the this is not the terminology that the Israelis have used, but in a fight in a sense, it, it's a fight for life or death, certainly for the Palestinians, 
And while the Palestinians ultimately cannot stop the Israelis from doing what it is that they want to do in uh, in Gaza, uh, that does not mean that it's going to be the end to the resistance. And of course, the um, the danger here is that this conflict does not remain restricted to Gaza. Uh, you know, this theoretically could become a forefront conflict. You've already had an exchange of fire with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And mind you, Hezbollah has its own concerns and clearly on the one is once is trying to balance on the one hand uh, that um, uh, its solidarity with Hamas and with the Palestinians. And on the other hand, that Lebanon is on the brink of collapse. And many in Lebanon feel that this is not Lebanon's fight. Then you have the Palestinians on the West Bank, where you've had mil uh, armed confrontations over the past year. Uh, and one reason why, in my mind, the Israelis weren't prepared for what happened on Saturday with Hamas was that their focus was on the West Bank, not on Gaza. And Palestinian militants on the West Bank are going to be emboldened by this. In fact, you saw, you, you saw militant Palestinians this weekend calling on Palestinians at large to, uh, strike at Israelis in their own towns and villages. And then the final potential threat here is that this escalates into a conflict with Iran. And the final thing that I will say on that is, in my mind, the decision by the United States to send an aircraft carrier group to the eastern Mediterranean, sure, it's symbolic support for, um, for, for Israel, but Israel doesn't need U.S. F-16s to fight Hamas guerrilla fighters. Uh, I think this is uh, for the eventuality of a conflagration with Iran. So there's a lot to unpack there. You mentioned the West Bank. Uh, I've heard a few reports in recent days uh, that Netanyahu, before this happened with Hamas, was sending uh, some troops out to the West Bank to support right-wing settlers. Is that what you're referring to when you when you say that uh, the the attention was on the West Bank rather than you know along the border of Gaza? Well, no, that's only one part of it. Um, I think you've had two, de three developments. First of all, you've had the, the rise of this Netanyahu government, which is open in its rejection of any uh, solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that would uh, try and uh, uh, take Palestinian aspirations and Palestinian rights into, um, into uh, account. On top of that, this is a government that supports the settler movement and is emboldened and encouraged the settler movement. So you've not only seen the rise in armed Palestinian militancy by Palestinian youths in refugee camps like Jenin, but you've also seen the settlers striking out in revenge, going into towns, killing people, uh, ransacking homes and so on. And so 
what I'm saying is you had an escalating situation on the West Bank, which was the security focus of the of the Israelis. And as a result, one reason, I think there's a degree of hubris and overestimation of their substantial capabilities, let's be clear about that. But nonetheless, that led them to, in a sense, ignore Gaza. So two things I want to clarify just for my audience. So uh, in Israel, uh, there's currently a coalition government uh, consisting of six parties. Uh, the Likud party, that's Netanyahu's party, United Torah Judaism, uh, Shias, uh, the Religious Zionist Party, Otsma Yehudit, that's the Itamar Ben Giver Party, um, I think it's known as the Jewish Power Party, uh, Religious Zionist Party I mentioned was uh, Smotrich, and then there's the Noam Party, uh, that's the parties that make up the coalition government, and what do you think this means for that coalition government, because, you know, I just saw a piece written in Heretz saying, you know, a lot of this is on Netanyahu and saying this is probably the biggest intelligence failure imaginable for the Netanyahu government. Well, I think there are several things here. <clears throat> this is indeed a government that has polarized, that has strained Israel's relations with uh, countries that were always its supporters, including the United States. Despite the tremendous, tremendous support that's been expressed for Israel in the wake of the Hamas attack, it's a government that has polarized the Jewish world. Uh, and so, and uh, it's a government that clearly wants Palestinians to go away. It has, it does not, it has no space for Palestinians who would enjoy equal rights in a one-state solution or um, uh, be able to determine themselves in an independent Palestinian state. Uh, what happens with this... Now, to be fair to, uh, to Netanyahu uh, and to his government, the government policies put everything on chart. But as a matter of principle... You know, the occupied, you know, the West Bank has been occupied for 56 years. Gaza has been under blockade for 17 years. Now, many of those years Netanyahu was prime minister, but so were others. Uh, and so Netanyahu is the man in the hot seat. The buck stops with him. And there is the issue of the way he has escalated Israeli policies, uh, he ultimately will be accountable for what is Israel's probably alongside the uh, the 1973 war where Israel was taken by surprise. Um, uh, he is ultimately responsible for the operational and intelligence failure. And I should note, uh, because I didn't earlier, for my listeners, Haaretz is a, uh, a newspaper of, um, you know, esteem in Israel. And I brought that up because I think you even mentioned it in your blog. You know, on one hand, this may harden uh, anti-Palestinian sentiments in Israel, but it also could lead to a lot of uh, contempt for the Netanyahu coalition government uh, and blaming them 
saying this is their security failure. It, it stops with them. I think once, yes, I, I think once got, first of all, I, yes, this is going to harden, certainly in the short term, uh, Israeli public uh, opinion uh, uh, attitudes towards the Palestinians. It's also going to uh, uh, call into question Israelis' confidence in the security forces. But at the same time, Israel, like the United States, is a deeply polarized country. And so logic doesn't always apply. You know, there are, one would assume that someone like Trump would lose support with all the legal difficulty that he has. Uh, one would assume that Netanyahu would lose support because of this um, uh, fiasco. But I think one has to wait and see. That may not happen. So then getting back to Iran, uh, you know, a lot of people are pushing this idea that Iran uh, played a role in these attacks in some way. Uh, what is your take on how Iran figures into all of this? Iran, certainly since the 1979 uh, revolution, has been supportive of Israel. Sorry, has been supportive of, of the Palestinians. It rejects Israel's existence. Now, a lot of that may be rhetoric. The proof will be in the pudding. But it sees itself as the representative of the oppressed, as the defender of Muslim causes. And therefore, supporting groups like Hamas, like Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip, uh, fits its policy completely. Uh, I believe there was the, also a Hamas spokesman uh, that you mentioned, uh, Ghazi Hamad, who told BBC that they had direct backing for the attack from Iran there, as well. Well, there, there, there have been two, uh, um, uh, two Hamas spokesmen. One who, Razi Ahmad, who spoke to the BBC, but also uh, a rally in Gaza by a spokesman for the uh, armed wing of Hamas, who was even more explicit in what the Iranians had done to help the um, Hamas prepare for this. But I think there are two things to keep in mind here. One is Hamas did this because it served its purpose. It did not do this because it served Iran's purpose. Now, whether Iran benefits uh, from it or not, is if it benefits from it, from Hamas's Amasa, point of view, it's icing on the cake. And obviously, Hamas would like to see Iran strengthened within the Middle East. So it, that works for it. But it would not have launched this operation if there had not been, from its perspective, major mileage. In, in doing so. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the relationship between Hamas and, is, and Iran has not always been a comfortable relationship. Hamas and, broke with Syria and act, in fact moved out of Syria uh, because of its opposition to the, to the way that Bashar al-Assad was conducting the, uh, the Syrian war. And 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 the Iranian support for this for 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 Bashar al-Assad. So 
even if Iran played whatever role, major, minor, this is not because Iran wanted to have wanted it to happen. Hamas wanted this to happen. Also, in regards to Hamas, I know a lot of people are saying that this caught everyone off guard. It's completely unexpected. But I do know that um, Hamas Political Bureau Deputy Chairman uh, Salah Alari said in August, uh, actually on Lebanese TV, uh, that Hamas wanted total war with Israel. In fact, he said it was inevitable. Were there signs that we were moving towards this moment over the summer uh, or even before that? The Hamas was preparing partly in the open for everyone to see for this. Now, what I think what's important here is that there was going to be an explosion should not come as a surprise. I think what comes as a surprise is Hamas's ability to break through the fence, to operate inside Israel, to take over towns, and to be able to create the rampage that it created. That is what I think takes everyone by surprise. The fact that this was built, that something was building up, I think anybody who follows what's happening between Israelis and Palestinians would have expected something to happen. With regards to some of the other countries in the region, uh, whether we're talking about the UAE uh, or Saudi Arabia, uh, how should we understand uh, their significance when it comes to all of this? What does this mean for them? What does it mean for relations with Israel, the Palestinians, etc.? Well, in a sense, it puts them in a bind. The Emiratis, part of the Emirati justification for establishing relations with Israel was that this was going to help solve the Palestinian problem. Um, it didn't. In fact, it didn't. It, it, it played a role in narratives, but I don't think that it really made a difference on the ground. Um, and so it's 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 a balance. What this has done is, uh, uh, let me put it differently. Um, there are a lot of people who say this has killed the U.S.-led effort to get Saudi Arabia to recognize Israel. Uh, it's made it a lot more difficult. It's increased the odds against it. I don't think it's killed it. Uh, what it means is the Saudis have um, insisted that there has to be viable, incredible progress towards a uh, resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as part of any deal for Saudi recognition. Uh, and it wasn't a lot of people suspected that Mohammed bin Salman was paying lip service uh, to all of this, but wasn't really serious about the Palestinian problem. Whether he was or not, now he has to be serious about it. His problem is going to be what we were talking about before, which is that Israel, the government, but also Israelis, are going to be in far less in a mood of making the kind of concessions they need to make to achieve progress on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, front. So a lot of this is going to depend on the political fallout of this within Israel. And 
you know, that may be too early to tell. Are there any countries we should mention uh, in this regard as well? I know you talk a little bit about Turkey. Uh, we just saw what happened with um, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. So uh, how does that fit into where Turkey's at? Well, I, essentially, this is a conflict between Hamas and Israel. So whatever party talks to both sides has got to be able to talk to both sides. At this point, there are three countries that can do that. Turkey, Egypt, and Qatar. Uh, if you look at the public statements that have been made by Middle Eastern states, the Arab states basically have blamed Israel, said Israel's responsible for this. The Turks have said, we want to try and um, reduce the tension. We want to try and mediate. Um, and you're seeing, you know, I, the equivalent of where you're seeing prominent, you know, significant. It's it sparked enormous debate, and 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 a lot of negative response. But you're seeing significant uh, condemnation on Arab social media. Of, uh, of Hamas because of the way that it conducted, conducted this attack. By the same token, you're seeing a significant, again, I'm not going to put a number on it, but nonetheless, a significant expression of Turks on the social media supporting Israel uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, one is because Israel indeed supported Azerbaijan in the whole Nagorno-Karabakh issue against Armenia. You have rising anti-Arab uh, um, anti sentiment in Turkey. In fact, you had recently a Turkish tourist, an Arab tourist, a Kuwaiti, if I'm not incorrect, but don't hold me to that, who was killed on the streets, if I'm not incorrect, again, of Istanbul. Uh, and you have... Um, uh, this whole sense of if Arabs are recognizing Israel, why should we be bothered about the Palestinians? So, you, you know, so that's one reason probably why the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan wants to mediate and is in a position to mediate if a mediation or when any mediation is possible. It may be too early for that. Uh, just a few more things I wanted to cover. In terms of motivations, what do you think uh, motivated the attack at this current time? Uh, what do you think is going on? I mean, I know we're speculating here, uh, but what do you think the calculations Hamas made? Uh, what were they and where may they have miscalculated with this attack? Well, I think there, there are multiple calculations. One is this puts the Palestinian issue back on the center stage at a moment that uh, Palestinians were felt that they were being sidelined. Um, it puts Hamas center stage. And that's important not only um, in terms of uh, Palestine, but it's important in terms of Palestinian president Mahmoud Abbas is 87 years old. He is deeply unpopular 
um, and um, there's probably going to be a succession struggle. And this positions Hamas in that uh, succession struggle. It also, particularly the fact that they uh, have taken hostages and large numbers of hostages, puts um, Hamas in a very strong negotiating position. Now, the last thing I, I'll say is, and a lot of people would disagree with me, is that I think what this is also about is about the terms of a future negotiation between Israel and Hamas, and Hamas rather than between Israel and the Palestine Authority, about a resolution to the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One of the major differences between Hamas and Fatah is that Hamas's position is, sure, we can negotiate, but we make our concessions at the end of the negotiation. We don't make our uh, uh, our concessions at fulfilling preconditions for a negotiation. We've seen what that brought us. So, in other words, in 1988, Yasser Arafat, as head of the PLO, recognized Israel, denounced terrorism. We're now, uh, what, uh, 27 years later? The Palestinians haven't gotten anything in return for that. If anything, the situation has worsened. And so the conclusion that Hamas has drawn out of that is, you fight to the bitter end, and once you have a deal on the table, that's when you play your trump cards. Uh, now, Hamas miscalculated, and I think it miscalculated on two fronts. It miscalculated in terms of how bad the rift between the Netanyahu government and its Western backers, the United States and Israel, how how uh, how deep the, that rift was. It presumably felt that if the Palestinians had a success, then uh, Western states would pile the pressure onto the Netanyahu government to negotiate. Real, real quick, not to interrupt you, the but second, I was going to... Okay. If, if, yeah. No, no, uh, I was just going to say, Hamas shot itself in its own foot uh, in the way that it conducted this attack. This totally unacceptable slaughter of civilians, and you know, slaughter of civilians, the the shows of disrespect for the corpses of the dead whether it was women who were being, you know, women, female bodies being stripped naked, uh, dead Israeli soldiers being lynched or kicked around, you know, that just totally undermined what Hamas may or may not have been able to achieve. I was just going to add for people, I know there will be people that say, what do you mean by uh, strained relationships between the U.S. and Israel? Because I, I think the the line we hear spoken of in the U.S., even during the Biden administration, has always been we support Israel. But there has been this tension uh, due to Mr. Netanyahu's embrace 
of nationalist and far-right European leaders. So that tension was there, but it seems like... I mean, the strains with Western governments were policies towards the Palestinians. The Americans were very critical of the judicial reforms that Netanyahu was trying to push through. And particularly in the case of the Europeans, but also uh, with regard to Biden, Netanyahu was cozying up to the, you know, to to the far right in Europe and the and the alternate. So, Viktor Orban of um, of Hungary um, and others in 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 Europe, and that's something that I don't think uh, Europeans, particularly West Europeans, particularly looked favorably upon. Um, yeah, you know, at the end of the day. Hamas has succeeded in putting the Palestinian issue center stage, but as much as people will argue uh, and rightfully argue that their root causes why this happened, and that unless you uh, resolve those root causes, you're not going to ultimately really reduce tensions, even so at least to some degree, the Palestinians are going to be center stage for the wrong reasons. When you say the root causes, do you mean things like the occupation in the West Bank, etc.? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Look, this has been going... We've had... I mean, it's been going on for longer, but if we just take the time since the 1967 Middle East War, when Israel conquered the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, it's pulled out of the Gaza Strip since. Uh, the policy has been exact a high price for any expression of Palestinian nationalism or Palestinian resistance. So if you were a Palestinian on the West Bank and you're, you go, your family knows nothing about what you're doing, is not involved, uh, and you go place a bomb somewhere, your family's house gets blown up. The whole, you know, the whole family, it's collective punishment. Uh, the whole family is punished and, and put into misery, in a sense. That's been Israeli policy. For 56 years, it's not worked. And Hamas, just like the Palestinian resistance on the West Bank, has proven that it's not worked. <clears throat> but nonetheless... That's the issue, and that's what I mean. What do you see as the biggest risks going forward for both uh, Hamas and Israel, and just the the Israelis and Palestinians caught in the middle of this? Well, look at the moment. If you're in the Gaza Strip, uh, that's not a nice place to be right now, and the the, the threat to to the life your lives, the lives of your family, the lives of others, is imminent and continuous. So Israelis paid a heavy price for policies that they've um, conducted uh, over the years. Hamas is paying, and Palestinians are paying a heavy price for that. If you get a ground invasion, this could become even worse. House-to-house uh, -house fighting is the worst kind of war you want to fight. It's the kind of war with the highest degree of casualties. Um, you've seen 
you know, look at the pictures of Tel Aviv Airport, where people disembark and ask to lie on the floor because of missile attacks. Airlines have stopped flying. Uh, so the human cost of this is um, is exponential. And, you know, in, in effect, and it's something I'm, I'm weighing writing about, but in, effa- in effect, there's a, um, I think I mentioned this earlier in our conversation, that the hardliners in the Israeli-Palestinian co- conflict reinforce each other continuously through their actions. It, it's almost and like, a, I, I was just going to say, it's almost like a uh, they almost need each other in the same way that I think yeah. uh, neoconservatives in the U.S. need it you know, radical terrorists, they sort of build on each other. They're like, they, they need absolutely. that boogeyman. Uh, absolutely. But what it means is that uh, Hamas leaders and Benjamin Netanyahu and others in the Israeli government may have more in common than any of them would want to admit. And one of those, one of those things that they have in common, this goes both for Hamas and for the Israeli government, total disregard for life of the other. You know, so Israel had options. I don't think it had an option of not to respond to the Hamas attack. But it could have done a targeted um, a targeted assassination campaign, one in which you don't just take out the top leadership, you take out the middle ranks. Uh, if indeed there are those military targets and, and I don't doubt that they are, uh, that there are military targets in Hamas. You take them out. That's a very different way of doing things than what we're seeing now. I was and, if you really, and if you're really smart, you couple an operation like that with clear, viable proposals to try and end this conflict. Israel's done none of that, and in a sense is as nihilistic in its, and, and many will probably disregard or, or, or take me to task on this, but is, is as, as nihilistic in its response as Hamas is. I was going to say in that regard, because I know the, the pushback that we may get uh, for you saying that is that people will say, oh, well, Netanyahu just uh, warned these uh, people in Gaza to leave this area that they were going to bomb. But my response to that, it, and maybe I'm wrongheaded to think this, but I don't know where they can go. It's such a densely populated area. I mean, where... Well, look, uh, to be fair, the Israelis have, in many instances, given advance warning. You know, and, and there are families that have been able to leave. The problem is that this is a densely populated one you can't leave you cannot leave this the gaza strip so whatever you were and 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 again people have interpreted what was originally said uh i think by netanyahu in his um uh in his uh suggestion that gazans leave that he was talking about gazans leaving uh, leaving gaza and obviously the response was, well, they can't. That's not what he was saying. He was telling Gazans to leave certain areas. The problem with it is that the numbers are such 
that there's no way there's nowhere for them to go there's there's nowhere there's not sufficient space alternative space for them to 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 seek shelter away from Isra- areas that the Israelis say that they're not going to bomb the other problem with it is that uh Israel targets a building but the fallout of that attack is not just on that building. It's on the surrounding buildings. So there's no way that you can conduct a uh, uh, a bombing campaign of this nature in this uh, on this kind of target without the civilian casualties being severe. I think one of the problems is, look, Israelis are traumatized. And if you're an Israeli, you have good reason to be traumatized. This was a mass slaughter. Let's be very clear about it. It's been called Israel's 9-11. And it, yeah. was, it is Israel's 9-11. And it was totally indiscriminate. Whether it was women, children, the elderly, it didn't matter whether you were a foreigner Take the case of the German tattoo artist. Uh, you know, it didn't matter. So Israelis have good reason to be traumatized, compounded by the intelligence and operational failure. So you really have hardened attitudes on both sides, and emotions, and uh, and emotions that one you know that that one has to understand. I was going to say, and to be fair in that regard, I think Palestinians uh, have their own traumas. I mean, the incident sure. with uh, Shireen Abu Akla, uh, Janine, uh, the Huwara Absolutely. burning down of Huwara. Yeah. What, I, what I'm saying, look, in a sense, what we're seeing is, again, in some ways, a repeat of history. And that is that if you go through the history of Israelis and Palestinians, and I've lived it. Uh, covering it and, and all kinds of other associations uh, for the last half a century. Uh, they're mirror images of one another. Well, they're both traumatized people in a way, yeah. They're, they're, well, they're, yeah, but I think Israelis today are probably more traumatized than they have been in 50 years. I mean, this, I, 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 right. You know, it can't be understated. I, I don't, I, I don't think one can underestimate. You know, and I talk to to many Israelis. I don't think one can underestimate just how how serious the trauma is. But again, this, te- this let me just be clear. This does not take away from the Palestinian trauma, which is equally deep, and they've had they've been su- suffering a trauma for the last fifty years. So I, I also wanted to ask you before we start closing out, um, I, there's a lot of analysis happening right now, a lot of, uh, I think, fog of war sort of analysis where people may be getting things wrong. Uh, what analysis do you think uh, people are falling short on? Where do you think people are getting things wrong in analyzing this current uh, flare-up? Look, I think the problem with this, with this whole thing is, and that goes round, all the way around, that... This is a conflict in which many people, for many different reasons, have a a deep emotional association with. 
and it's also a conflict which increasingly has become a polarized conflict. You're with us or you're against us. Uh, now, that's partly just the way it has evolved. It's partly by design. So, with other words, trying to uh, equate any criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism is you're with us, or uh, uh, basically, or you're you're with us and you're without us, or, or you're against us. Attitude, ultimately, and you know, let's. I, I mean, I've got associations with this conflict, both in terms of my my family, my history, and so on. But emotions aren't going to do it. If it's going to be got, if it's going to be run by emotions, then this is only going to worsen. Uh, I think one's got to take a step back and look at this rationally, even if one, what one sees is not what one likes, but it is the reality on the ground, and that's the way to to deal with it. In that regard, is there anything that you would um, you hope for with regards to the future uh, when it comes to what has just happened? I mean, how would you like to see things being handled going forward? Let me, I'm t I think I'm too hard a realist, and maybe to some degree be, uh, hardened, uh, 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 cynical by by having been hardened by by what reality is. That I don't think it's a question of hope. Um, at least that's not the way I would express it. The only way out of this is a, uh, a mutually acceptable resolution of the issue between the Israelis and the Palestinians that both sides can live with. Not necessarily that both sides like, but at the end of the day, you only settle a conflict, certainly a conflict of this kind, when the price of not settling it is too high. Um, now, whether that's a two-state solution and whether one believes that a two-state solution is still a viable solution or realistically possible, or whether that's a three-state, one-state solution or a three-state solution for that matter, involving Jordan and some sort of confederation an idea that was floating around half a century ago and is now coming back. Uh, it's got to be a deal that everybody finds minimally acceptable. You want to use the word hope? That's what I hope for. Do I think it's going to happen anytime soon? I don't. Just more conflict is on the way it sounds I, like. I, I, I think it's going to be ugly first. And... You know, maybe it's the Marxist principle, it's got to get worse to get better. The question is, how worse does it have to get? Just to reiterate, um, your piece really is talking about how this completely changes the paradigm of the Middle East. In closing, uh, what do you think the flashpoints are when it comes to how this affects the Middle East more broadly, just even beyond Israel-Palestine? Well, it. I think it affects... Uh, Arab relations with the Israelis. It affects uh, attempts to broaden uh, what is described as the Abraham Accords, so the recognition of Israel by Arab states. I think it hardens Israeli and Palestinian 
attitudes towards one another. Uh, it demonstrates that you cannot simply shove conflicts aside. You somehow need to find a way to resolve them or to manage them in a way in which all parties are feel recognized in the management. And, uh, you know, that's a significant fallout. And that's why I said, you know, titled my piece, The Middle East Will Never Be the Same. And, and of course, also, I, I think he mentioned this, that this has really shattered the notion that the occupation of these Palestinian lands is, you know, indefinitely sustainable. How important is that to understand? Well, let's put it this way. I think a lot of people understood this prior to this. It just drives the point home. Um, I, you know, whether or not that is the realization that breakthrough, if you wish, the United States and European leaders had an opportunity to condemn this, um, uh, the Hamas attack, and at the same time say this conflict needs to get resolved. That's not what they did. Uh, and they've, of course, reinforced the notion that there are double standards here, given the way that they reacted to the Russian invasion of and occupation of parts of Ukraine since 2014, and the way that they have uh, responded or not responded to more than half a century of um, Palestinian lands. So is there anything I missed in this conversation that you uh, wanted to just briefly mention? No, I think we've uh, by and large covered it. It's not a pretty picture. Um, and it's not a picture that looks like it's going to get any brighter anytime soon. And it's a sad way of ending this. Indeed it is. It's it's a very disturbing moment. And to your last point, I feel like you're saying in some ways what's been called the international community um, has sort of dropped the ball on this. Well, it, yes, it has. And let's, I think it's, it's interesting to look at the number of things here. So a lot of the focus has been on U.S. response to the crisis, European response to the crisis, but uh, Israel has also had expressions of support from countries like Brazil and India. In fact, uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, tweeted uh, his support for Israel. So, uh, it's not just the Western countries. I would think it's got, you know, what's, what's interesting here is, I think it's China. Because China is obviously going to come out with an even, or may have come out with an even handed statement and calling for uh, a, a, a halt to the violence and so on and so forth. But what happened on Saturday in Israel is something that is going to deeply worry China and others. Because 
this is a little bit, although, you know, like the uh, jihadist victory against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Whether or not the jihadists could have done, you know, really were the victors or was there the American support for them, it doesn't matter. Jihadists and many others perceived this as uh, an Islamic group defeating a, 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 a superpower. A lot of militant groups are going to perceive the Hamas attack and the fact that it was able to do that and the fact with all the consequences of it are going to be emboldened by that. But particularly the fact that they were, uh, that they were able to, 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 uh, uh, to have a serious performance against a major military power. China's going to look at Uyghur militants who were in Syria. You know, the whole crackdown in Xinjiang, what, that was one of the reasons. So China, no matter what it says, is going to have you know, double-edged feelings about this. So, with other now, China will will say, you know, we recently invited the parties and offered to mediate. China clearly doesn't have the wherewithal to to mediate uh, an end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But what I'm saying is that the international community's response to this is much more checkered and much more layered than may meet the eye. I promise to let you go, but I've also seen people saying that, and I, I think this is alarmist, but that this is like the beginning of some World War III scenario. I Maybe you think that's a dumb question, but uh, just comment on it because I know people are starting sure. to say that. <laughs> uh, what The question being what? Uh, it, are we tumbling into like a, a wider conflict or a, a World War III situation? Not over Israel-Palestine. I don't see that happening. Um, I think that, uh, again, I don't see Chinese troops or Russian troops coming to the aid of Iran if there's going to be a conflagration. Uh, that doesn't mean that we could not have another world war, but in my mind, that would probably be over Taiwan, for example, not over Israel-Palestine. Well, I want to thank you again, James M. Dorsey, for coming on Parallax Views. Could you tell my listeners how they can keep up with your work? Uh, I would invite you to subscribe to my Substack newsletter, which is www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com. Uh, www You're more than welcome to uh, sign up for free. But if you find what I'm, what I say and write of interest and, uh, of value, then I would urge you to help me cover the expense of publishing this, uh, by becoming a paid subscriber. In any case, thank you very much for listening today. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found enlightening this conversation. With James M. Dorsey, please go to jamesmdorsey.net, uh, subscribe to his work, 
he's an indispensable resource, and if you can throw him a few bucks, I would really recommend his work. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.